Welcome to the Recent Speeches podcast presented by BYU Speeches, featuring inspiring new devotionals and forums given each week on BYU campus. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. Sisters and brothers, I am so happy to be here with you today. The beloved children's show, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, premiered in 1968. It ran for 31 seasons and remains unique in its commitment to addressing the real concerns and feelings of children in real ways. The show's host, Fred Rogers, didn't play a character. He would just be himself, and he let generations of children know that they could just be themselves too. I was one of those children who was raised believing that Mr. Rogers had always wanted to have a neighbor just like me. A close look at his iconic opening song reveals what Mr. Rogers means by a neighbor. Certainly, he is building on the literal definition of the word, which comes from the Old English, nea, or nigh, gabur, dweller. So nea gabur means near dweller, or someone who lives near someone else. For Mr. Rogers, however, there are some additional meanings to the word. The first verse sets up that it is a beautiful day in the neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. In this opening, the song moves from describing the weather to describing the relationship. It's a beautiful nay, not just because the sun is shining or the clouds are puffy, but because our involvement with those nears us makes the day beautiful. Then in a charming linguistic reversal, he underscores this point. It's a neighborly day in this beauty wood, a neighborly day for a beauty. Being neighborly is not just what makes the day beautiful. It turns us, the neighbors, into beauties. I am compelled by the vision of the world that Mr. Rogers creates, one filled with good neighbors who like each other just the way they are, and in so doing, turn a neighborhood into a beauty wood. However, it seems as if the world, as if we have forgotten this message, We are living in a moment where neighborly behavior seems hard to find. Civil discourse is dissolving into partisan debate. Small kindnesses are lost in expansive intolerance, and rampant individualism is replacing community spirit. The last two years have been really, really hard, as the entire world struggled under the mortal threat of a global pandemic. As horrific as this physical threat has been, its pressure on our lives has revealed what I believe to be an equal devastating plague. Today, I would like to talk about that plague, the plague of selfishness, and how understanding what it means to be a good neighbor might point the way to curing it. In one of his greatest sermons, Elder Neil A. Maxwell outlined the slippery slope of selfish behavior from self-centeredness to societal decay. He explained... The early and familiar forms of selfishness are building up of self at the expense of others, claiming or puffing credit, being glad when others go wrong, and preferring public vindication to private reconciliation. By focusing on themselves, a selfish person finds it easier to bear false witness, to steal and covet, since nothing should be denied them. 
Selfishness likewise causes us to be discourteous, disdainful, and self-centered while withholding from others needed goods, praise, and recognition as we selfishly pass them by and notice them not. Alas, gross individual selfishness is finally acculturated. Then societies can eventually become without order, without mercy, without love, perverted, and past feeling. Society thereby reflects a grim cumulative tally which signals a major cultural divine decline. <sighs> there are three particular kinds of selfishness that stand out to me in Elder Maxwell's description. The first is a selfishness of intellect, where the selfish person claims credit, bears false witness, and is disdainful of the ideas and opinions of others. The second is a selfishness of individualism, where the selfish person builds themselves up at the expense of others because what they want is more important than the needs of those around them. The third is a selfishness of income, where the selfish person withholds from others needed goods and services. This selfishness of intellect, individualism, and income is, as President Hinckley declared, the antithesis of love. It is a cankering expression of greed. It destroys self-discipline. It obliterates loyalty. It tears up sacred covenants. It afflicts both men and women. Friends, we are so afflicted. And as a result, we are beginning to see that grim cumulative tally in the world around us. Fortunately, however, I do not believe we have gotten to the bottom of the slide. Jesus Christ himself has given us clear direction for how to turn selfishness into selflessness. His lesson comes to us, as many of his lessons do, in a parable. In the 10th chapter of Luke, Jesus was in a discussion with disciples when a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him with the question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied by asking the lawyer to answer his own question from the knowledge of the law. The lawyer replied easily, thou shalt love the Lord thy God and thy neighbor as thyself. After Jesus explained that the lawyer already knew the answer, the lawyer followed up with a tricky question, and who is my neighbor? Famously, Christ's reply is the parable of the Good Samaritan. Once, a man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and on the road he was set upon by thieves who beat him, stole his clothes, and left him for dead. By chance, a priest was going the same way, and when he saw the broken and bloody man, he passed by on the other side of the road. Soon after, a Levite came by. He stopped and looked at the man, and then he also passed by. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where the wounded man was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. The Samaritan went to him and bound his wounds after cleaning them with oil and wine. He set the man on his own beast, took him to an inn, and continued to care for him through the night. The next day before he left, the Samaritan left money with the host and asked the host to look after the man and promised to reimburse him for any expenditures that were necessary to take care of him. Now, I am not a biblical scholar, but I am a passionate reader. And here are some of the things I read in this parable. First, Jesus is telling the story to a specific person, a lawyer, or a Jewish expert in the law of Moses. 
As a theater maker, I am keenly aware that it is the primary responsibility of a storyteller to know who the audience is so that you can create a bridge between their experiences and the ones you were building on the stage. Jesus Christ was a master storyteller, so I have to assume that he was creating a world familiar to the lawyer who was his intended audience. This means that from the perspective of the Jew asking the question, the hero of the story was someone his people disdained. In framing the story about a Samaritan, Jesus was creating an opportunity for the lawyer to identify mercy in a person who looked, acted, and worshipped differently than himself. Jesus was inviting the lawyer to set aside his own high opinion of his learning and position and to see the good in an other Jesus Christ's whole life was that invitation to put aside our own perspectives and try to see the world through the eyes of others. Through his ministry, Jesus spent time with tax collectors, whores, the lepers, poor, people of different races, different religions, and different nations. In all of his relationships, Jesus welcomed those whose opinions and lifestyles were different than his own. In my own life, I have at times been like the lawyer who questioned Jesus, confident that I am the star of the show and selfish in that security. I'm grateful for some life experiences that have shaken me out of this self-centered complacency. One such experience occurred on a trip my husband Glenn and I took to visit dear friends in Morocco, which is the most foreign place I have ever been. I was nervous to navigate a country that news reporting at home suggested was dangerous to women, Christians, and Americans. I am all three. After our weekend with our friends, my husband and I set out in a rental car on a road trip across most of Morocco. We had a paper map that was nearly useless and a few reservations along the way, including one night riding camels out to camp in the Sahara Desert. The rest of the trip followed a pattern. We would drive into a small town, park at the center, and wander around. We would find places to eat, shop, and stay by talking with local Moroccans in French, which was a second language both for them and for me. On our way out of town, we would ask people on the street to give us directions back to the main road, and we would head off again on our journey. I found myself sometimes hesitant in these encounters. My self-focused worldview had me looking for differences to judge. For example, the toilets in these small towns were not at all what my husband and I were used to. Rather than being provided a seat and toilet paper and a flushing mechanism, the toilets were frequently spotlessly clean pits with markers on which to place your feet and a bucket with dripping water for cleaning. In one town, after a delicious meal, I asked to be shown to the toilet room before we headed back out on the road. The owner of the restaurant told me to wait, wait, and then he hurried away. He was gone long enough that we became a little concerned about the safety of the facilities and maybe ourselves. I became impatient and I was discourteous in my heart. But after some time, the restaurant owner returned bearing a small roll of toilet paper. This man had selflessly seen me, not as a foreigner, whose opinions and lifestyles, frankly, were probably abhorrent to him. Instead, he saw me as his neighbor. He had taken some money out of his own till and gone next door to the souk to buy me some toilet paper so that I would be comfortable. I was immediately ashamed and I repented of my selfish ideas. The rest of the trip was infinitely better for the lesson this man taught me. 
it is perhaps easy in extraordinary moments of cultural exchange to identify both the cankering expressions of greed and the kindness of strangers. It may be more difficult to see these closer to home, but even in our own neighborhoods, we are guilty of the selfishness of intellect when we hold on so tightly to our own right ideas that we stop listening to, learning from, and loving those with whom we disagree. We must work even more diligently in the familiar to set aside our own egos and to put away overweening confidence in our own opinions. Elder W. Craig Zwick has encouraged us to develop this kind of empathetic selflessness. He observed... There exists today a great need for men and women to cultivate respect for each other across wide distances of belief and behavior and across deep canyons of conflicting agendas. It is impossible to know all that informs our minds and hearts and to fully understand the context for the trials and choices we each face. The willingness to see through each other's eyes will transform corrupt communication into ministering grace. Back to the parable of the Good Samaritan. Once Jesus had established the setting of the story, a deeply wounded and naked man on the side of a dangerous road, he explained that two different religious people had passed him by. We can probably all understand that impulse to see something uncomfortable. (laughs) He's not wearing any clothes. Time-consuming. I have somewhere important to be or possibly dangerous. I don't know what happened here. I just know I don't want it to happen to me. And heeding this impulse, we hurry past. However, passing someone who needs our help is rooted in a selfishness of individualism where our own comforts, wants, or even needs are put put ahead of the comforts, wants, and needs of others. In a general young women's meeting, Sister Sharon G. Larson reframed the story of the Good Samaritan to the story of an emotionally wounded girl in high school who was passed by other girls who didn't want to bother themselves with her. Sister Larson reflected... Each one who passed the girl in need had one question in her mind. If I stop, what will happen to me? The girl who did stop to help also had one question. If I don't stop, what will happen to her? To be a good neighbor is to wonder how your words and actions will impact others rather than worrying about how you will be impacted Now, this is not to say that we should abandon personal safety or exhaust ourselves in unhealthy ways. Instead, it is to build the faith to understand that when we are unselfish, our needs will also be taken care of. This principle is one of the most difficult of Jesus' teachings, but also one of the most foundational. It makes no real sense that the best way to care for yourself is to stop caring so much about yourself. But again and again, Jesus taught that whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. I hope you can look at your life and see the many times that you have been blessed when someone has put your needs ahead of their own. 
I can trace these patterns of service in my own life from the tireless goodness of the parents who raised me to my remarkable daughter, Eden, who never wearies in doing good for our small family, her friends at school and at church, and our neighborhood. I have been served by them and by faithful visiting teachers, loving colleagues, and dear friends. At times, the selflessness of service has been extravagant. My father retired early at the height of his career in the Marine Corps so that my sister and I could go to high school in one place. At other times, I have been cared for by small kindnesses whose cumulative effect has made my life rich and blessed. One such small kindness occurred on my mission. I served French speaking in the Canada-Montreal mission where it was cold. So, so cold. In the winter, we would bundle up with long johns and leggings under our skirts, snow boots, sweaters, hats, scarves, under hoods, and everything covered. Really, the only thing you could see was our eyes and our name tags. The entrances then of most homes in Quebec feature a big plastic pan to catch the snow melting from boots left at the front door. As missionaries, we would come in from the cold, take off our boots, leave them in the pan, unwrap everything else, and have a visit. And then you'd have to reverse the process to leave. Sister Barney and I spent most of one winter together, and we became very adept at moving in and out of our snow gear. That winter, we were also privileged to share the gospel with a wonderful woman, Sister Janine James. Sister James was elegant and gracious. Her home was well-appointed and her cooking divine. As we taught her, she welcomed the gospel with an open heart and mind. We were comfortable in her home where we felt the spirit and we felt loved. One afternoon, after a particularly cold and difficult day, we ended up at Sister James's house for a quick stop. We read scriptures and prayed together. And then when it was time to go, I was just overwhelmed. I did not want to leave her warm and lovely home. I thought I was hiding my stress well, but apparently not well enough because Sister James noticed and she came down the stairs where Sister Barney and I were putting on all of our clothes. Um, She paused before me. And when I paused to reach down and put my boots on, she knelt down in the dirty and melting snow and she started to put my boots on for me. I was first embarrassed and then immediately emotional because the only thing I could see as she knelt before me was Jesus kneeling to wash the disciples' feet, an equally dirty and uncomfortable task, I'm sure. When she was done, she gave us both hugs and sent us back out renewed to continue our work for the Lord. But that day, Sister James's simple, unselfish act was truly the Lord's work. If you can review your life and see the ways that you have been blessed by others, I also hope that you can see the ways that you have been sustained, supported, and renewed as you have set aside your own selfishness and have ministered to others. In a devotional he gave here at BYU 45 years ago, President Hinckley stated, generally speaking, the most miserable people I know are those obsessed with themselves. The happiest I know are those who lose themselves in the service of others. If the pressures of school are too heavy, I can suggest a cure for your problems. Lay your books aside for a few hours. Go leave your room and visit someone who is old and lonely. 
or visit those who are sick and discouraged. There are hundreds of that kind here. Include not a few on this campus who need the kind of encouragement you can give. I have a testimony of this principle. We must be willing to accept small or even large discomforts in our own lives in our efforts to be better ministers to those around us. We will become our best as we think of ourselves the least. One of the key features of the parable of the Good Samaritan is the material support he gave to the man on the road. The Samaritan used his own oil and wine to clean the man's wounds. He took time out of whatever business he was about to take the man to an inn and to stay the night tending him. He then paid for the room and promised more money to the host for the man's care. The Samaritan was a good neighbor because he freely gave of his wealth to help someone who needed it. His example stands in stark counterpoint to the selfishness of income. I am grateful to belong to a church that provides the opportunity for me not just to share my time and talents, but also my resources with those around me. After all, none of it is mine anyway. As King Benjamin preached, I say unto you that if you should serve him who has created you from the beginning and is preserving you day to day by lending you breath that you may live and move and do according to your own will and even supporting you from one moment to another, I say if you should serve him with all your whole souls, yet ye would be unprofitable servants." Every penny in our banks, everything we own, every award we win, grant we receive, each job we land, every raise we are given is a blessing from the Lord. He is the one who preserves us day by day and supports us from one moment to another. And in his generous goodness, he allows us to keep 90% of it all and then sends additional blessings to us for keeping the commandment to pay a tithe. The Lord does ask that we dedicate some extra portion of our income to support those who have less. Through fast offerings, missionary support, and humanitarian aid donations, we can help build the kingdom of God in real, material ways. Brothers and sisters, we need to be better about giving of our resources to help those in need. A key feature of every Zion community, from Enoch's Zion in the Old Testament to the citizens of 4th Nephi and to the efforts of early saints in the United Order, is that they all had no poor among them. In our day, we have been called to repentance for this selfishness. Elder Jeffrey R. Holland declared, down through history, one of humankind's greatest and most widespread challenges is poverty. Its obvious toll is usually physical, but the spiritual and emotional damage it can bring may be even more debilitating. In any case, the great Redeemer has issued no more persistent call than for us to join him in lifting this burden from the people. Elder Holland gave further advice about how we can better obey the commandment to care for the poor and needy. First, He advised us that we need to stop withholding our means because we see the poor as having somehow brought their misery upon themselves. Second, we can pray for those in need. Finally, we can conscientiously look for and pray to be guided towards compassionate acts of giving. 
When my son Cohen was four years old, more than anything in the world, he wanted to be a construction worker. He would start his day off by strapping on all of his tools and then would work throughout the day fixing things around the house. Now a sophomore in high school, Cohen is old enough to hold an actual job instead of just a pretend one and to have a bank account and to manage some of his own funds. His father and I were thrilled last summer when Cohen decided to find a job. He did some research, dressed professionally, and went around to businesses near our home to pick up applications and talk to managers. We were even more thrilled when he secured a position at a food establishment within walking distance of our home. Nearly every day last summer, Cohen would walk from our house to work and then back past lots of other businesses to come home. And nearly every day, we would ask him how much money he had made in tips. Cohen's response was always the same. He would tell us he didn't have any tips that day. Glenn and I wanted to make sure that Cohen understood that if he worked a full shift, he had earned his portion of the tip jar. We talked at him about the payment for his labors, and we encouraged him to be more responsible or even aggressive at getting the money he was owed. After one of these discussions, Cohen finally, with exasperation, clarified. It wasn't that he didn't get any tips. It was that he didn't have any tips by the time he came home. The logical follow-up question we had, of course, was, what are you doing with all your tip money? As his path takes Cohen past a number of fast food restaurants and stores, we first assumed that he was stopping in to spend his money on the way home. However, with some additional prompting, Cohen explained that his path also took him past various people who had set up at the entrances of these stores to ask for money. Instead of passing by on the other side, my son was stopping to talk to them and offer his tip money to whoever was in need that day. Now, I don't know how much money my son was making in tips, but even if it were only a few dollars a day across the summer, that adds up to a notable sum. But when asked why he wasn't keeping the money for himself, he replied, objectively, it's the right thing to do. I have some money. They need some money. Why wouldn't I share what I have? My son's quiet example of selfless donation is one small way to answer King Benjamin's charge. I would that you would impart of your substance to the poor, every man according to that which he hath, such as feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, visiting the sick, and administering to their relief, both spiritually and temporally, according to their wants. As we give our selfishness to the Lord, he will turn our weakness into a strength of selfless service. As we begin to see every one of God's children, not for their differences or the ways we disagree with them or how they make us uncomfortable, we will build a neighborhood of saints. This is the message of the Good Samaritan. We are neighbors when we set aside our cherished prejudices, when we think of others before we think of ourselves, and when we give of our wealth to those in need. And who is my neighbor? Look at the person next to you. And then look at the person next to them. Neighbors start as near dwellers. But in a covenant community, we have promised God that we will bear one another's burdens, mourn with those who mourn, and comfort those who stand in need of comfort. There is no geographical restriction on this expansive, eternal commitment. President Nelson has clarified that being a good neighbor is a global endeavor. He said, 
Our highest priorities are to love God and to love our neighbors. That broadly includes the neighbors in our own family, our community, our nation, and our world. Salvation is not a solo effort. Our happiness in this life and the promised blessings of life to come is dependent on the interdependence we develop with God and our neighbors. When we are selfish, we are alone, and we are not meant to be alone. To return to Mr. Rogers' song, imagine our heavenly parents giving us this invitation to heal ourselves of the sickness of selfishness. Our heavenly parents are pleading for us to do their work in the world. Could you be mine? Would you be mine? Won't you be my neighbor? Through the mechanism of the second great commandment, we are given this very invitation, which I now extend to you once again. Won't you please? Won't you please? Please. Won't you be my neighbor? In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to the Recent Speeches podcast presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts, including classic speeches taken from our vast audio library, as well as other BYU Speeches compilations on love and marriage, overcoming adversity, by study and by faith. Come follow me, the prophet Joseph Smith, and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU Speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.